Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Buddy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Welcome to episode 54 of Weekly Weights. My name is Alex Hayes. With me, as always, is Will. And with us today is Matt Gary. So Matt is the Coaching Education Director of USA Powerlifting. He's the owner of SSPT, which is a gym, and he's been involved in powerlifting for well over 20 years. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So we wanted to get you on to talk about your training philosophy and your coaching experience, especially at the international level. So I guess we'll start off with your training philosophy. So like I said, you've been involved in the sport for over 20 years. What are some of the major influences you've had um, in how you view training? Well, I think, you know, back when I started, which was in the early 90s, I think most of the people in the, in the Western Hemisphere, at least, were doing a lot of the same thing, which was just kind of that classic progressive overload, if you will, that linear progression uh, that was, I think, kind of made, made famous by lifters like Ed Cohen and Kirk Karwaski and some of the legendary, uh, you know, behemoth greats of, uh, of, of years before. So uh, as a matter of fact, uh, for a significant pa- part of my early career, I actually trained at the same gym where Kirk Karwaski trained. So in, in many ways, he served as a mentor, not so much verbally, but just uh, by, by me being able to watch him and observe. And uh, so a lot of us were kind of doing, doing that progressive overload thing in the beginning, which was just kind of low frequency and pretty simple, you know, setting up your, uh, your, your training structure with uh, more repetitions in the beginning and then progressing for a few weeks and adding weight each week and so on and so forth. And also kind of popular during that time, at least in the States, was a publication called Powerlifting USA. Now, I don't know if that ever kind of, you know, was a thing in Australia, but that was a really big deal for us because this was, again, pre-internet. And so information wasn't as readily available. So all of us look forward to receiving that monthly publication of Powerlifting USA. And in it, uh, you'd always have a workout of the month kind of featured by uh, a famous lifter. And then you'd also have uh, Louis Simmons, who would write an article, if you know from Louis Simmons from Westside Barbell. And cool. so a lot, of, a lot of the information that Louis was putting out was in stark contrast to anything that a lot, a lot of us had been exposed to. But I think the one thing that it really encouraged me to do was just to read more and to investigate more. Uh, was to dive into some of the texts that he was suggesting taking a look at, a lot of the Russian texts and the, and the Eastern Hemisphere literature, if you will, on training and, and looking at what weightlifters were doing and, and, and lifters in Russia. And so I would say that those were some of the two biggest uh, influences early on and, uh, you know, just encouraging me to read more. And then, you know, of course, then once the internet became a thing, then, uh, and I know that sounds funny because a lot of your listeners probably have not grown up, you know, without internet. So um, mm. that, that dates me a little bit, but nevertheless, uh, once you, you have information at your fingertips, then you're exposed to other things. And I would say, you know, so through the middle of my career and more recently, you know, obviously Mike Tushier has, you know, popularized the whole RPE thing. And that wasn't, you know, Mike is not the guy who came up with that, but he certainly popularized it in the context of strength training in the context of powerlifting. And so you have that he's been a major influence and certainly a good friend of mine. And then uh, even after Mike is just some of the research that's been coming out by some of my good friends, uh, 
you know, Dr. Michael Zordos has done a tremendous amount of research with daily undulating periodization. And so I think if you kind of look at those four cornerstones, if you will, kind of the progressive overload and then Louis Simmons and those articles pushing me to investigate the Russian texts and so forth. And then you've got Mike Tushir with the RP and then, and then Zordos and some of these people who are doing the research with the DUP. Th those are kind of the things uh, that have really caused a shift in, in training, not, not just with me, but I think globally. Do you think, um, this is tangential to the point, but do you think yeah. that the scarcity of information in the pre-internet times sort of made you made you more eager to go and find things out and pursue ideas yourself? It's almost like now there's so much information at people's fingertips they can just lazily take it on without even thinking about it. Yeah, and I think, you know, also, to, uh, just to be transparent, I think some of us fell into the trap of doing what everybody else was doing also. So, you know, when I trained at the gym where Kirk was, we saw what he was doing and we saw what other lifters were doing. And, and naturally, I think if you don't know, you try to emulate what the best are doing. And so you see them doing uh, this type of progressive overload training, you know, low frequency and, and so forth. And you, you begin to emulate that. So while there was a definite thirst for, hey, what else is out there? There was also this notion of, man, let me go with what's working for the best in the business. And so you kind of fall back on that. And so, you know, and then, and then that runs its course and you find that, you know, nothing works forever. And then that really kind of nudges you to, to start looking in other directions. Yeah, sure. I actually remember hearing Kirk on a podcast recently and he was joined by another guest. I'll be really embarrassed if it was you. Um, but he was with him. He was with somebody else. And he, um, he sort of made the point that even though people look at his training as being outdated because it was low frequency and very simple, in terms of periodization and stuff that not many people have actually beaten the sort of rep, like the lifts that he was doing under similar conditions. And so he made yep. the argument almost that people now overcomplicate training. And it was almost bro-esque. He was basically saying, you know, you do the hard work, you follow a simple structure, you can do it for a long time and that's what gets you better. Um, yeah. How much of that do you hold with? Yeah. I think there's a tremendous amount of truth to that. I mean, look at, you know, there's a lot of prime examples of, of people who've run those, those similar training strategies with great successes. I mean, my wife, Susie, for example, I mean, she trained under Kirk, Kirk's tutelage for quite some time and did similar things and had great success. I mean, she's a 27 time national champion, so that doesn't happen by accident, no. you know? So, and, 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 and so I think, uh, I think people do have this tendency to overcomplicate things and to, uh, to, to make it harder than it really is. And I think, look, I mean, training does have to be scientific at some point, and it does have to, you know, at times, uh, you know, you have to use science and you have to use mathematics and you have to use uh, that sort of thing. But also there's, you know, it's the, the, founda the foundation of any effective program is, you know, what, consistency and effort. So, you know, yeah. if, you, if, you, if, if, you, if you train hard and you bust your ass and you do it consistently, you're likely to get good results regardless of what you're doing. And I think that's just kind of what, you know, Kirk said, and I saw firsthand how hard he worked and how diligent he was. And, you know, the results kind of speak for themselves. Yeah, I think it's that. It was a, a thousand pounds, that squat double, that legendary one where he sort of wants to hold it in between reps yeah. and things. Like, that's about the most yeah. hardcore thing I've seen in training. It was just crazy. Yeah, you know, and that was done at a body weight of 125 kilos. That was the old weight classes. So that was, uh, you know, that was about 10 to 14 days out from his competition that year uh, at, at our nationals. 
And yeah, he doubled a grand. So that was 455 kilos basically that he hit for a double weighing, weighing 125. And that was, you know, of course equipped, but the equipment back then was just so far inferior to what we have today. So it's just, yeah, it's mind bending. Um, It is. It's mind bending. So if that, if that thread of sort of, you know, consistency and hard work over time ties together the way you view training, what have been the big things that have changed in your experience as you move from this sort of just basic progressive overload model to what you do now? Well, I think, um, I think the internet, obviously, you know, and just the access to information at your fingertips. And I think, I think, so to answer your first question is what prompted the change? I would say just some stagnation in my own training and um, an increased rate of injury by not doing uh, enough variation and not having enough periodized training and just having it be too linear too mu- too often. Uh, that was what prompted the change. And then I think there's this realization that I've come to, to recognize within the past few years, you know, that it's okay to change your mind. Um, I think, I think a lot of people get hung up on one way of thinking and I think it's important to remain open to, to, to being willing to change your mind and not be so closed minded so that, you know, ultimately when you are exposed to a different approach or perspective, and then you begin to understand the rationale behind it, you know, sometimes your mind changes. And so, you know, then you begin to experiment with these other things and you find that, you know, Hey, I can, I'm not going to break. Uh, I'm not going to die. I'm not some, you know, uh, weak little thing here. And I can't expose myself to, uh, to higher doses, you know, of, uh, of, of frequency and volume and intensity over a given period of time. And I'm not going to die and I'm going to come out on the other side of it. And in, in many cases come out better for it. So I think, I, I think the, the, the biggest change uh, would just be the increased frequency and volume, which is, you know, seemed to have been, you know, the trend lately within the last probably five to 10 years. And then of course the inc- incorporation of, you know, more specific, you know, assistance exercises. I think before, back in the days of, you know, uh, like we talked about Kirk and so forth, I think the, the assistance exercises were a lot more generic. You know, they weren't, uh, it was more kind of followed that bodybuilding or bro mentality of, hey, you know, okay, I benched today, so I better work my chest and my shoulders and my <coughs> triceps versus thinking about, you know, hey, there's some specific assistance exercises that I can do to address, you know, a weakness or lack of force production in the range of motion. You know, I can do an, you know, an exaggerated pause or I can do a, a board press or, a, you know, adjust the tempo, et cetera. And so I think, I think those are the, the, the main shifts that I've seen. I think that's a, I've sort of spoken about this on the podcast before. That's quite a like Russian weightlifting-esque way of thinking about the lifts is that you segment them and you say, what's the particular deficiency or where in the range of motion do I need more work? And then how can I have a specific exercise address that? before incorporating it into the whole. Um, and it's yeah. something that both Alex and I have found more and more success with when we're trying to get lifters to alter their technique or get stronger is to do that is to specifically target an aspect of the skill rather than just hammer away, hammer away at the whole thing always. Yeah, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think, you know, lots of times we have to look at when you have a periodized plan as training like a funnel, you know, and you've, it starts uh, further out from a competition with a, the wide mouth you know, and so you incorporate more of these assistance exercises as you just alluded to. And so maybe you're maintaining a frequency of, uh, of one, maybe for this, you know, just to maintain the skill of the competition lift. But then the other times within the week, you're incorporating these assistance exercises, as you said, 
to address a specific uh, part of the range of motion. And then as you get closer to the competition, you know, into your strength blocks, and then of course your intensification phase, and, and you start to peak, then that funnel narrows, and you begin to ditch some of those assistance exercises, obviously, in favor of increased frequency of the competition lifts. You know, and then you're, you're literally and figuratively rounding into your sport form, and you're doing you know, pretty much exclusively those competition lifts. But to your point, you know, I think it's important to incorporate some of that assistance stuff, particularly, you know, uh, the further you are out from a contest. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, one of the things that sort of, I guess you're known for is the way that you train each of the lifts very differently. And in particular, mm-hmm. the way that you train the deadlift. Um, yep. Let's just go through each of the three lifts and talk about um, some of the considerations for you when you plan training. Okay. So let's, let's start with the squat. What are the things that, you consider that are different to the bench or the deadlift? So I think, so, so uh, first of all, the squat, we, we emphasize the squat quite a bit because I, I like to refer to it as, as the king of the lifts, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, you know, if you were only allowed to come into the gym and do one thing, I think that would probably be the one thing that you should do. And so I think that when you get good at a squat, it is a gateway uh, lift, if you will, um, that permeates and influences the other lifts. So uh, it's unique in the range of motion requirement. Obviously you have to achieve depth and you're not, your performance is not dependent upon a referee in terms of the bench, which we'll get to in a second because your performance there is directly correlated to the pause. So, you know, just looking at the lift and and breaking down the squat, you know, obviously you start with the eccentric and then you've got the concentric. So we emphasize the squat because we feel like it helps the bench press and it helps the deadlift as well, and because it's the very first lift in a competition. And so because it's the first one, it's a tone setter. And so we pour a huge amount of effort into training the squat because we know that that's going to set the tone for the rest of the competition. So specifically with the squat, we have, we have a tendency to be pretty moderate to high frequency and high volume with our squat. And because it does involve that eccentric, before the concentric, we will use some adjustments of tempo a little bit further out from a co- competition in terms of assistance exercises uh, for the squat. But uh, we don't get too, too blown away with assistance exercises. I mean, we might implement, you know, changing of the stance, changing of the uh, bar placement, and, and sometimes front squats or, or safety bar squats, things of that nature. And, and as I said, the tempo and maybe pausing in the hole. But aside from that, uh, we don't do a ton of other uh, exercises. I don't like to get too, too far away from the actual skill of squatting. But I guess that would kind of, you know, explain the squat. But that's, we use that as the main driver for the other lifts. And it's always placed first in our training because you're always going to squat first at a competition. You're never going to do the other two first. So, I mean, specificity, practice like you play, you know, um, we always put it first in the training and then kind of moving on to the bench. I think the bench, because it has the, uh, I feel like that's the most highly technical of the three lifts. And I think it's also the one where you have to stay within yourself, uh, mentally. It's a thinking person's lift. I think, you know, more so than the, than the dead, certainly the deadlift and the squat. And because uh, you're laying on your back and you're actually able to see the bar in your hands and see the bar path and the trajectory and control it in that way, it's, it's highly technical 
and I think the most susceptible to uh, enhancements in technique. And so, uh, but as I alluded to just a, a moment ago, because your performance is directly dependent upon that press call, uh, you know, your performance is in the hands of somebody else. So uh, for that reason, we do a lot of extra long pauses, you know, and, and adjust tempos in the bench press as well. Um, uh, and that is the one lift where we may work up to a max prior to the competition, or if not a max, really, really close to it. I would say with the squat, kind of going back for a second, we, we, most of the lifters that I work with don't max out per se in the squat maybe only work up to roughly second attempt ish or in that neighborhood prior to a competition. Uh, most of the lifters that we work with get a big bang for their buck out of that game day adrenaline. But I think the bench, because you can recover more quickly in the bench press, you can train it with a higher frequency, smaller muscle groups, all of those reasons, less taxing, presumably on the nervous system for most of us. You can push that. You can really redline the bench a little bit more than you can the other two lifts. So you can push We feel like you can push that when literally up to a third attempt, perhaps maybe even a little bit beyond. So, and, and of all the lifts in training where we occasionally miss, that would be the one where we have some misses. We don't, we don't miss too often in the squat or the deadlift. And I think that's pretty important. I think that you don't want to get in the habit of missing, certainly not on purpose. So I think it reinforces bad motor patterns. I think it opens you up to injury and it also creates this, uh, mindset where you you get used to failing and so uh that's not something that we promote too much so, so um, I, with the with the squat and the bench press uh how would the frequency of the two compare to each other and how would the volume of the two compare to each other so i would say that the frequency uh i would say that the bench frequency is the highest and that and, and all of these lifts typically are going to increase in frequency I would so let's get right to the nuts and bolts of it. I would say that we have an average of a two to three time squat frequency per week, a minimum of two, um, and and probably the sweet spot would be three. But again, that's going to depend upon everybody's schedule and their recovery ability and their life circumstances, etc. I think the sweet spot sweet spot for bench is probably right around three, a minimum of two, a sweet spot of three, and as high as four, maybe even five benches uh, leading up to a competition. And so the volume in the, in, in the squat, I think is, you know, clearly just for the reason that, you know, unless you're Jennifer Thompson, you're, you know, your squat intensity and, and load is going to be much heavier. Uh, the, the total volume is going to be high, much higher in the squat than it is in the bench. But I, th I think if we were to, gosh, if you were benching as much as you squatted, I think the, 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 the bench volume might actually come out a little bit higher. So if you had, you know, just use 100 kilos, for example, if you had two, if you had a lifter who was only squatting 100 kilos, but also benching 100 kilos, I think if we actually looked at that through the course of the training cycle, the bench volume would actually end up higher. So you do more, more total reps of the bench than the squat. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. And then of course the deadlift, which I guess is kind of, you know, that's, that's, I guess pretty much what we, what we've been become known for is doing singles only in the deadlift. We don't do any tempo work in the deadlift uh, really at all. To be honest with you, we'll do an occasional pause in the deadlift, you know, some halting deadlifts either immediately off the floor or just below the knee to address some weak points, but we don't adjust the tempo uh, because it's a concentric only lift 
and you're never walking out on the platform thinking I'm going to pull this one slowly. So, you know, that's, that's never something that you're thinking of. So, uh, but for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with my rationale for doing only singles in the deadlift is, uh, first and foremost, uh, the, the reason that we do, uh, singles only in the deadlift is because of specificity. I mean, that's all you're doing in the competition is lifting the weight. You're not lowering it down, lowering it down first. And then of course, uh, that's what the science tells us. So I, you know, again, going back to the, uh, me mentioning Louis Simmons, that was where I first heard of doing singles. And he talked about that and mentioned uh, some Russian texts. And of course the famous text, super training. And when you dive into super training and some of the texts by Verkashansky and, and so forth, and you look at those things, you come to understand uh, coupling time is the actual term. Uh, which refers to the amount of time of the pause or the amount of time where you are in contact with the ground. And so the, the tipping point there seems to be about four seconds. So if you pause, for instance, using the bench press as an example, that's a perfect example. If you were to pause the bench press four seconds or longer, you are no longer using that stored elastic energy or that stretch reflex. So therefore, with the deadlift, we just do singles and that way we never uh, use the stretch reflex. We never use momentum. We never use any of that stuff because that's exactly the way that it's going to be executed on the platform. So that's why we do that the way that we do it. It's just singles. Every once in a while in the off season, we will use uh, some repetitions or certainly, you know, I'm actually coaching the strongman competitor now who's got an event coming up and uh, he's going to be doing a deadlift for time in a minute. Well, then, of course, we're going to do some repetitions. We're not doing singles only, you know. Needless cool. to say, yeah, it's horrible. But in a, power <laughs> lift, in a, in a powerlifting context, uh, we do singles. And then we address those weaknesses uh, in the deadlift by doing assistance pulls like deficit deadlifts, perhaps pulls from blocks, uh, the halting deadlifts, the pause deadlifts that I mentioned. But it's exclusively singles in the competition-style deadlift. So if uh, would, oh sorry you go oh no that's okay and, the, and and those are always done after squats always because again you're always going to squat first in competition and so when you have lifters who come into the gym and they say well I just hit a new PB and the deadlift my one of my first questions is is did you squat first because if not you're talking about a completely different context unless you're getting ready for a deadlift only competition and I think if you start training that way. It's a real kick in the teeth in the beginning. It's going to be harder because you're not used to it. You know, a lot of people are just uh, used to walking into the gym fresh and start deadlifting. But once you start squatting first, I actually feel a lot better. I feel quite warmed up. A lot of the same muscles are ready to go. And I feel uh, much more pliable and, and, and just ready to deadlift after kind of priming the nervous system, if you will, with squatting. So um, we always pull after we squat. Um, I was going to say before so far like nearly everything you've said has echoed stuff Alex and I have said so we have the privilege of agreeing on nearly everything and yeah. I'm just going to play devil's advocate in a couple of cases sure. so you say you pretty much train the lifts in the competition order for the sake of specificity um in the case of say a bench presser who needs extra bench press technical work or somebody for whom you're really trying to build the bench press up say it were to be lagging do you ever see a case for doing it before the squat for the for the sake of them being less fatigued and doing better quality bench press work? Or what would you do in that instance? Yeah, uh, the short answer to that question is yes. I, yes. Uh, the longer answer is, uh, for instance, 
typically we have our lifters bench after squatting because once again that's how you do it in competition but with the frequency of the bench press being a little bit higher than the squat there are going to be some days where you come in and you just immediately start with the bench so that's kind of that's the longer answer to your question is that we may just have bench only days or just upper body days where you're Mm. coming in and you're and you're not squatting first but at least probably two days uh, of the week, I would have lifters squat first and then bench. And certainly they need to be taking some kind of significant squat prior to a heavy bench so that they get used to the impact of having that bar on your upper back and your shoulders. I would say using your analogy of the funnel, that in the way I structure a lot of my clients training, and maybe Alex is the same, is the closer I get to competition, the more I try to structure training sessions to resemble competition demands. So a long exactly. way out, if I'm like, let's develop some base qualities, I'm not as fussed whether they bench after doing some lower body stuff. But when it comes to comp, I like to have a three lift session here and there or something so that people are used to that. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's a great way to look at it. And I think typically with most of the lifters that, that I coach at least one month out, so that final phase or at least in the peaking block, they will have one what we call the, you know, the sport form day or the SBD day, if you will. Uh, on, and we usually bookend that on one end of the week, either at the front end of the week or at the very end. Sometimes it's on the weekend because that's when people have the most time in the gym. And that's an, you know, a squat bench and a deadlift day. And so yeah. where they're doing all three. And so there's absolutely no excuse you know, to arrive at a competition and be gassed. I mean, you know the test before you're going to take it. So I, I can't imagine why you wouldn't at least take the test in training a couple of times. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. yeah. I like so far your analogy is a bit on point, Matt. So I'm hoping we can keep that up for another hour. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> right on. <laughs> um, the other, the other just point I wanted to clarify was you train deadlifts with exclusively singles. You got a really solid rationale for it. Again, something Alex and I have spoken about for people who struggle with the movement pattern of the deadlift is sometimes using either slower pulls or particularly slower eccentrics just to develop positional awareness. Same way I was talking about the bench press where in the earlier stages of the funnel, that might be appropriate. But as competition nears, I would probably regress towards the types of things you're talking about. Do you ever use the deadlift itself for that? Or is it mostly exclusive? I'm sorry, accessory work that you might sort of do that type of stuff with. So it's mostly accessory work, but I like the way that you kind of, uh, you know, explained it there. And so, yeah, I have occasionally, you know, used uh, a slower tempo on an eccentric or a, or a concentric with a deadlift, but that's pretty far out from a meet. If somebody really has trouble holding positioning, you know, in their back, for instance, you know, right when the bar uh, reaches the knee or just coming off the floor, then we will have them pull a little bit more slowly. But uh, also to your point, uh, most of the time I prefer to address that with a, you know, a positional, if you will, assistance exercise. Uh, and, 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 and then have them pull normal style. But I have done that where we've slowed the tempo down a little bit, uh, pretty far out from a meet. But as you said, once again, the funnel analogy, the closer we get, the, you know, the more it's going to be just like the competition. So what types of positional assistance exercises do you like for the deadlift and like for which purposes? Yeah. So I really like, I really like, um, you know, so when looking at an assistance movement, we're, we're specifically trying to address a weakness in the range of motion, which is usually it's the position of the lowest amount of force production. So I like to use the analogy that 
we're rolling a ball across the floor. So if I were to stand with you guys and roll a ball across the floor, all three of us could point to the place where the ball stops. We can all point and say, okay, the ball stopped over there. But what happened was the ball actually started to slow down before it physically stopped. So what we need to do is we need to address th – there's a range there of, of where the ball began to slow down versus where it stopped, and that's the weak range of motion is where it began to slow and then physically where it manifested itself by stopping. So we need to train within that range of motion. So oftentimes I like – kind of a ground up approach where you start, you know, you can't get any lower than the floor unless you create a deficit. So if you start with some sort of deficit pull, which particularly works well for conventional deadlifters, you know, because it's a little bit safer. I mean, with, with, with sumo deadlifters, you're going to have to use some non-slipping stall mats or something to create a deficit. Uh, but you don't want, you know, sumo deadlifters standing up on high blocks or, or something where their feet are going to slip because that's going to lead to injury. Or you're going to use smaller plates, but the problem with using smaller plates, like if, you know, in your context, if you use a 15 kilo plate instead of a 20 or 25, with your stronger deadlifters, my God, you're going to have, you know, 15 kilo plates out to the end of the bar. So you need to create some sort of deficit, but starting with the deficit pull and working that range of motion for probably, you know, typically I like to schedule uh, assistance exercises, usually within a mesocycle of, of three to four weeks, and it kind of neatly fits in to the calendar that way, you know, a training block is put it in maybe like a three to four week chunk. And then that way they can use the first week to kind of acclimate to the exercise, the second week to kind of add some volume and some intensity. And then in either the third week or fourth week, depending upon how things are going, maybe they're even able to hit a PR in that lift or, you know, a, a volume PR or an intensity PR or something along that before then switching it and, and, and working your way up in the range of motion. So if I were to start with a deficit and use a deficit pull for, let's say, three or four weeks, perhaps the next block might be deadlift to, uh, you know, halting deadlift or a pause deadlift at the knee. Or it might be a rack pull or a block pull from just below the knee or something like that. And then again, same rationale, use that for a mesocycle of three to four weeks. And then you can work the top end of the lift or something like that you know, where you're doing a, a really high partial pull or you're having somebody do Romanian deadlifts or something like that where they're maintaining that, you know, flat back position or something uh, of that nature. But once again, I think it's also important to not just pick an assistance exercise based upon, oh, that's what my favorite lifter is doing. You know, if you're not weak off the floor, then you probably don't need to spend a ton of time doing deficit work. But if that's your area of deficiency, then you, you damn well better get to it. Um, what types of intensities do you prescribe the singles in when you do a deadlift? I think it depends primarily how far you are out from a competition. So if you've read some of my stuff, I would say the vast majority of the work that we do specifically for the deadlift and frankly for the other lifts too, is right in that 80 to 85, 80, maybe as high as 88, 89%, just that 80% range. And the reason that we, we do that specifically for the deadlift is it's, it's moderate enough to kind of mitigate that feeling of being overworked. You're never kind of revving the engine too hard. Um, and, it's, and it's moderate enough to accrue enough volume to create an adaptation in terms of positive motor patterning and the skill <coughs> acquisition. So one, one of the, you know, the drawbacks or the, or the uh, 
the devil's ar- argument, you know, the other side of the coin, if you will, that I get lots of times is, well, with doing singles, you don't get enough volume. And, and, and my argument is, is, well, I'm, I'm getting, we're getting enough volume by virtue of the fact that we're getting more first repetitions than you are. Because if you do one set of five and I do five singles, I'm getting five first reps. Whereas you're only getting that one first rep. And so, you know, the volume can be equated. And if I don't do, you know, if you're doing five sets of five, let's say, which would just be an extraordinarily high deadlift workout, we may not be doing 25 singles, but we may be doing singles multiple times throughout the week. And one of the reasons that we can do multiple singles is because we don't have the, the repeated eccentrics and therefore we're not uh, accruing that muscle damage and that muscle soreness. So while it's harder in the short term, in the now, because we have more first repetitions, breaking it from the floor is harder than lowering it down with a, with, with a stretch reflex and using that stored elastic energy. But over the course of the week, it's actually easier because we have less muscle damage. So uh, again, getting back to your main question is what intensity range, primarily it's in those 80% ranges uh, for the majority of the time. But then far away from a competition, we'll dial it back below 80%. Maybe we're in the 70% ranges, even as low as 60, 65. And then of course in the peaking block, you know, we're at those loads of 90% plus. But definitely in the deadlift, that's the one lift that is most positively affected by the game day adrenaline and the game day experience. So we, you know, we don't max out in the gym in the deadlift. Again, I would say most of our lifters hit maybe a second attempt and oftentimes just below a second attempt in the meet. And if they hit that successfully, you know, with, with pretty low levels of arousal in the gym, we know that they're going to be good for, you know, a lot more at the meet. I mean, I'll just using myself as an example, I'll often pull 20, kilos more in a competition than anything I've pulled in the gym. Yeah. I'm the same as you in that regard. More um, so you're like 50 kilos more. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. No, um, it really is. I, you mentioned that doing deadlift singles, people often criticize by saying it's not enough. It's not enough volume. And I was um, coached by Hanny Jazzarelli, who I know, you know, um, oh, yeah, and sure. I pulled with only singles twice a week in an SPD day. And his rationale was that my lower body volume and my deadlifting volume was brought up by my squatting volume. Is that something Absolutely. that you subscribe to as well? I do. And that's why I said, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, our squat is drives our deadlift. And so our lower body volume is going to be high by virtue of the amount of squatting that we do. So uh, it's going to, it's going to push the deadlift. And so therefore you're not going to necessarily need as much deadlifting. You're already going to have that taxing on the lower body, the hips and the back and the posterior chain and so forth. And so by doing the singles, as you said, Hanny had you doing them multiple times per week. And I'm sure that was very, a very effective uh, protocol for you as it is for our lifters. So I've, I've had lifters uh, at sometimes deadlift uh, with singles up to three days a week. So, you know, again, it's like anything else, you know, and I, I liken a lot of this, you know, the, you know, we talk about the general adaptation syndrome through exercise physiology, and this is not to get too much out in the clouds, but you can liken all of this to sunlight tolerance. And so you ask people lots of times, you know, I say, do you think you could deadlift every single day of the year? And they look at me like my clothes are on backwards. And they say, of course not. And I say, well, wait a second. Do you think you could pull 60 kilos for a single 365 days a year. And of course they laugh. They're like, of course. 
you know, without even thinking about it. I said, okay, so then the answer is the volume and the intensity, not necessarily the frequency. So you can, so it's the same with sunlight tolerance. You know, uh, you have uh, the darkest African-Americans at one end of the spectrum and you have albinos at the other end who don't tolerate much sun. And they have most of us, right? You have most of us who are in the middle. Well, if you want to get a deep, a deeper, darker tan, newsflash, you got to go out in the sun more, right? You're going to have to have greater exposures to sunlight for longer periods of time or at more intense times of the day. Quick so it's the same way with sponsor Bondi Sands for that <laughs> bronze tone. Guys, you can use it weekly ways 15 at checkout on bondisands.com.au. <laughs> that is absolutely not the case. <laughs> but come on, Matt. Yeah, you want to just like Matt Gary, then yeah, hit him up. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. But yeah, so anyhow, it's, uh, you know, I kind of liken it that way that, you know, if it, look, it's at some point in time you're going to have to be deadlifting more than once per week, uh, and 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 you're not going to die from doing so. I think uh, most people, uh, you know, the word overtraining gets thrown around way too much, and so uh, most people never even approach uh, being overtrained. You know, most of the time, clinical overtraining is saved for you know those ultra endurance athletes. You know, just because uh, your elbows get sore, you've had one bad workout or your RPs feel a little bit too hard, doesn't mean that you're overtrained. Um, you said that 25 reps in a deadlift session would be very high volume when you used your 5 by 5 example. How much extra work and at what sorts of intensities are you doing with the accessory deadlift reps? So with the accessory deadlifts, we will use uh, the eccentric and we will do multiple repetitions per set. So I would say, you know, I would say maybe the, depending upon the exercise, there might be a sweet spot. If we're, if we're like, let's say we're doing competition deadlifts on a Monday, first day of the week after squatting. And then later in the week, maybe on a Thursday or a Friday, we're doing an accessory pull. I think we're probably having, uh, you know, maybe 20 ish work reps works, you know, uh, working reps. Uh, on our assistance movements, uh, depending upon the intensities. But, but lots of times we're not um, redlining the engine on that car either too, too hard on, you know, because there's such an attention to detail in terms of the form and the technique and the motor patterning. So, you know, with something like, uh, like a deficit deadlift, you know, we're probably operating somewhere in that, you know, uh, 75 to 85% range, uh, as opposed to taking that up to, you know, a max or anything like that. So you can accrue a significant amount of volume on that second day. So, you know, and that should be taken into consideration in terms of your total deadlift volume for the week. So those who kind of balk or push back and say, oh, well, you're only doing, you know, 12 singles or however many singles, you know, at 83%, let's say, on your Monday. And I'll say, well, yeah, well, look at the deadlift volume that I'm doing later in the week. You know, you can add that in as well. So. And, and remember, like I said before, if you're pur- pulling 12 first repetitions, that is going to feel harder than you probably doing four sets of three or three sets of four. Mm. And I've got the data to prove it because I've used bar speed uh, analysis and I've done some presentations on that where we've looked at lifters pulling singles versus pulling repetitions. And so the, the, the speeds ultimately uh, across the way are going to be higher for those pulling signals because you don't have to pace yourself. 
if you have to pull a set of four, you're taking your foot off the gas, whether you like it or not, because you know that you have to get through four of these. So, so you're typically, saying the first rep of a set of four is often slower yeah. than the first rep if you're, or like the single Absolute, of a cluster. Yes, it is. That's interesting. Yeah. It almost, it almost, it, so if it, let, let, let's, let's, let's make it easy. Let's use a set of five, right? So that's an odd number of repetitions. The speeds will often look like a bell-shaped curve when we plot those points on a graph. So the first repetition will oftentimes be the slowest. Why? Because it's first, you're having to overcome inertia. Then the second repetition, if you've rested less than four seconds with that bar on the ground, so if you've done a, God forbid you do a touch and go, that should be heresy, okay? <laughs> don't, don't bounce your deadlifts. Stop it if you're doing that, okay? But if you bounce your deadlifts or, you're, or, or you do a touch and go or you're resting less than four seconds, you're, you're using stored elastic energy. Even if you let go of the bar, you still have stored elastic energy in your muscle fiber, in the muscle spindles. They're helping you for that next rep, okay? So the second repetition would, is oftentimes faster. And then the third repetition may even be a little bit faster than that. And then, of course, fatigue sets in and things start to, to trail off. So, but if then we plot the points of the person who does singles and all of their first reps, because they're only doing one at a time, are going to be higher. Oftentimes as fast as that second or third rep of your five rep set. And that's what we want. Maximum force production, maximum speed development. You don't want to hold back. You know, the deadlift is one of those lifts where you literally have to get a chip on your shoulder, get pissed off, have an attitude, and pull the bar with reckless abandon off the ground. That's your problem, Will. Well, not no, enough. No chip on your shoulder. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I, I was going to ask one more question about deadlift singles. Um, when you're in the lead up to a competition, how many singles would you look at doing across the week? And generally, how spread out would they be? And also, how would the intensity differ on each of those days? So, uh, that's a really good question. And it's going to depend upon where you are in the training cycle. So uh, do you have a specific time in mind? Because then like I might the, be the able last, to give you. The last 12 weeks or so, how would the volume change? Yeah, so let's say that we're deadlifting twice a week using singles twice a week. Let's say on a, a day one would be a Monday and maybe day two would be a Thursday or a Friday later in the week. So we've got a nice spread there with a few days rest in between. I would have the higher volume day be on Monday uh, at a heavier intensity. That's coming after a volume squat. So you're going to put in a significant volume squat. Maybe I, I, if you're using daily undulating per, uh, periodization as an analogy, uh, you're using a hypertrophy day on that Monday. And so you have a volume squat. So you're coming into that deadlift fatigued already. And you're going to pull – and I would say early on, let's say that first four weeks, that first training block, I would probably have you doing somewhere between maybe 15 and 20 singles on that first day. Sheesh. Uh, and that's at around 80%? And that, no, no. That's starting probably at maybe 65% and okay. then working up to about, yeah, maybe increasing about 5% per week until we hit maybe 75%. Okay. That's and then that, yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's, not, that's not too, too bad, right? And again, you can do those cluster style, as you said. Or you can do them where you literally hit one, walk away, and come back 30 seconds later and do it. 
So it's enough time to chalk your hands, get your act together and come back over. But typically we don't rest more than a minute between deadlifts unless we're talking 90% and above. So less than, less than 90%, I would say our sweet spot's probably like a 45%, uh, 45 second rest period uh, between, between singles, unless you prefer to do them cluster style. And of course, cluster style, you can do them, you know, just as long as you're resting more than four seconds. So if you wanted to knock all of those 15 singles out, let's say, and you wanted to do three clusters of five, that's fine. You just have to rest a minimum of four seconds because that bar has to remain on the floor or else you're using stored elastic energy. And I'm not telling you that that's what the science, the data say. Then that second day of the week, I would probably in the beginning, you could probably equate intensity on that second day. I don't you know, at loads of 70 and 75%, that's not going to beat you up too much, mm. but I would probably have you do, fewer singles. If you did 15 singles on Monday, I might have you do 10 on Friday or something like that. And that's going to be after a heavy squat. So you would probably come in and do your heaviest squat of the week. And then you're taking that moderate slash lighter deadlift on the Friday, but it's enough to, you're like a samurai and your sword can never be sharp enough. And so you're sharpening that sword on Friday, right? You're pulling that out. You're sharpening that blade. You're getting an opportunity to practice your skill and it's not heavy enough that it's going to break you or that's going to kill you. And that, so that, that would, hopefully that answers what that might look like. In so the that's, first, that, that's that first block. And then the, I'm yeah, guessing those yeah. reps would come down a little bit and the, yeah, volume, would the intensity would come up a little bit in the next block. Exactly. And that's where you're probably hovering in that 80% range in the yep. middle block. And I and would say you're probably four doing, weeks again, same thing. Probably. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, does and the disparity I, between heavy and light day get bigger as you get towards the comp or would you just keep it sort of similar? I keep it sort of similar. I think, I think in that first block, you could probably equate it because mm-hmm. the intensities are so light. I think in that second <clears throat> block, there can be a little bit of a drop off, maybe a five to seven and a half percent drop off, if you will. And then the last drop, the last could be a 10% drop off. And right. so I usually, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So not, a, not a huge contrast in intensity, just small. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yep. 10% is pretty reasonable when you're doing sets of one though. Like if you do yeah. 12 singles at 85% and then what is it? 10% lighter, like eight singles at 75%. That's a significantly mm. easier workout. Yeah. Heaps easier. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a lot easier and you can do it faster. Yeah. You know, with, with, you know, lower, you know, look, you can create an overload, not just intensity of bar, but by reducing rest periods and doing a lot of other things. I hope JP is listening because this is what I want to do. What just less work? Just singles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is, is 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 he coaching you now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, he's 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 good people. I love JP. Yeah, it makes one of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, JP is a good bloke. Um, yeah. <laughs> all right, I've pretty much wrapped up my questions I had for you about training of you as well. Huh? Yeah, should we have a break? Yeah. Do you want a quick break, mate, or are you ready to just stick with it? Really, this is on you guys, man. I'm. I mean, I can, I can, we'll, we'll, I can we'll flow, like- or if you want. Will likes to do our musical interlude, so yeah, we're gonna have a. I will have a break for a second. This is the Matt Gary song. We'll be right back with more. Right on. Weekly weights. Welcome back to Weekly Weights. I'm Will Berkman. With me is Alex Hayes, and with us is Matt Gary. This is episode fifty-four. We're now going to talk to Matt about some of his coaching experience at the highest level. So. 
For a fair while, you were coaching chairman of the USAPL and you were head coach at the World Championships for their team for many years. Mm -hmm. Exactly how long was it? Sorry, if you don't mind. Just fill us in. Uh, So I've been the head coach of five national teams. And so more more recently, uh, what you've seen... I guess let me back up. Uh, in from I was the head coach of the Open team that's equipped, the women's Open equipped team from 2010 to 2012. Um, so that was three years there. Our appointments in the United States are for three-year terms. Mm-hmm. So all of our co- all of our coaches are on three-year terms, and then at the end of that three-year term, they're evaluated. They're invited to reapply if they would like to, uh, or if we need to make a coaching change, we make a coaching change. So I was, I received my first head coaching job in 2008. That was of a regional team, the NAPF team that we have here, the North American Powerlifting Federation, which, you know, for you all would be the Oceanic team or whatever. Uh, So I was the NAPF uh, head coach in 2008. I was the head coach of the men's team at the World Games in Taiwan in 2009. And then from 10 to 12, as I said, I was the head coach of the women's open equipped team. In 2012, because I became the coaching chair, I actually stepped down on purpose because I felt like I wanted to focus my efforts on just being the coaching chairman and providing oversight to the other coaches rather than also being a coach myself. I felt like that would be not only selfish, but uh, just uh, overcommitting myself. So I stepped down, became the coaching chair. More recently, what you all have seen is in terms of the raw scene was my wife, Susie was the head coach from 2016 to uh, through 2018. So the last term, the last three years was Susie and I was her primary assistant. So oftentimes that kind of got confusing. Uh, people thought that I was the head coach, but I really wasn't. I was the coaching chair serving kind of as her boss, if you will, but she was in fact the head coach and I was her primary assistant. And so Many times we were kind of looked at as co-coaches, but it was kind of neat because, you know, really USA Powerlifting kind of got the best of both worlds, if you ask me, because they got my wife, who's an exceptional coach, and I was her, her right-hand man. So, right. Have you seen Susie's squat? No. What's her best squat? 161 and a half, is that right? At 52? Uh, 156.5. Oh, so oh, she, have... so... That's equipped, yeah? No, no, raw. What? No, that's raw. And then Liz broke her record. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, I think I, so. I think I think Liz broke it, but it was—I uh, mean, it wasn't in the IPF, but I think Liz did break it. And I know that Liz has squatted more several times in training. I mean, Susie and Liz are friends, uh, and I know that—I mean, I never forget the first time that Liz broke Susie's record. I was immediately sent Liz an email. I was watching it live on on the live stream, and I sent her an email. And I was uh, also hit her up on Instagram and was like literally uh, one of the very first people to congratulate her because I was so happy that she broke Susie's record because Susie hadn't had anybody to push her in, in a while. And it was a good to light a fire under her ass for, for, for that reason. And so then, of course, Susie came back and in Belarus, they went head to head. And Susie just had the advantage of the lot number. And that's when she squatted the 156.5. Undoubtedly, if Liz had had the advantage of lot number, she would have done the same thing. And she would have been the one that walked away with the world record. I have no doubt in my mind. Um, and I think, as I said, I think Liz has done a little bit more now. So uh, hopefully Susie can, can break that sometime soon, but it's 156.5 at 52. Okay. So 
let's bring all that together though. You've spent yep. years and years at the highest level coaching and assistant coaching. I mean, exposed to some of the best athletes in the sport. When you're at that higher level, what role does a coach play in facilitating performance and results for the athlete? And like, how is it different from just coaching at your local comps? So first and foremost, the coach's role is to put the athlete in the best position to succeed. So if I were to sum it up in one sentence, that's the sentence. It's my job to put the lifter in the best position to succeed. So to answer the rest of that question, it's just all about context, right? Because context is everything. So as we work our way up the competitive ladder and the competitive chain, the priority changes. So when you're at a national championships or you're at a world championships, the goal of the athlete should in theory change. And so one of the things that I preach to the lifters that I coach at national championships and at world championships, and I tell them, I literally tell them right to their face. I say, Today is the only day out of the year when you can become a world champion. You can hit a PB 364 other days out of the year. So you need to kind of keep that in, in the back of your mind that our number one objective is to win, particularly at a nationals or a world event. So systematically, I use a lot of the same strategies and the same rules in terms of how I pick attempts and looking at the data and using percentages, but contextually the other methods change because if I'm handling somebody at a local comp or something like that, you know, their priority is to hit PBs and have fun and build their biggest total. It might be to qualify for an event to qualify for nationals. And so if they need to hit their qualifying total, then of course that becomes the goal. But if they're not strong enough yet to hit the qualifying total, then it's all about building the biggest total possible and hitting some PBs. I mean, at the, you know, at the base level, the personal best the PR, the PB, whatever you want to call it, that's what we're all after. We all want to do something that we've never done before, obviously. Mm. But as I said, the context is going to change as you work your way up that competitive ladder. And I think that's really, really important to understand. So because what? Mo- I keep going. Yeah. I was just going to say most lifters, uh, they, they have trouble. They really have trouble wrapping their brain around that, that notion that today is the only day out of here when you can become a, a national or a world champion. And so they have this emotional attachment to these numbers that they have in their head and that's rubbish. So, it's, so what, are, what are some of the things on game day that change at an international level meet that you wouldn't experience at a local level comp? Like what, what, are the, what are some of the things that would facilitate us winning versus hitting the biggest number we can? Like what are some examples? Well, presumably the competition that you're going up against is going to be a lot higher, right? Obviously, because mm-hmm. you're, you're going up against the best of the best. And the competition is going to move a lot faster at an international competition than it is at a local comp. I don't know how the local comps are at your, you know, in Australia, but we have oftentimes multiple sessions or two sessions per day, maybe two, three platforms running simultaneously and, and maybe uh, three to four flights per flat per platform. So we have very large local competitions and so there can be large breaks. And so just logistically speaking, that's going to look a lot different than a world championships. Mm. Our, and, and, and you've seen on the live streams, our, our nationals, 
they're insane. Yeah. They're, they're, they're huge. Now, thankfully we've come up with this, you know, for the past three years, this prime time thing that we do where we take the best lifters and we put them in two flights and we do it in the evening and so forth. And so that's run more like a world championships where it's very, very quick. It's very fast and there's not much time. So just from a logistical standpoint, lifters have to be in a little bit better condition and be prepared for that um, because it's going to be a much faster pace. I think something that JP actually said when we spoke to him about this as well was at a local comp, you sort of, and like attempts are basically dictated by what the lifter just lifted, right? And so, you know, somebody does a second attempt, you go, oh, you're good for five kilos more. So they get five kilos more. Um, at the international level, your attempts are dictated by the demands of your competition. If you have whatever it is, five kilos more in the tank and you need two and a half more to win, then two and a half is the sensible pick. And sometimes if you think they only have five kilos more, but there's no medal between five and, or there's no medal between zero and seven and a half, but seven and a half could leap them into silver or gold, then it can be worth taking that jump as well. And so I think coaching becomes much more tactical, right? Because it's about positioning your athlete to be able to make decisions at advantageous times and in ways that are advantageous for their performance. Absolutely. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with what JP said, with what you just said. Of course, we're reading and reacting to the competition. And so I'm trying to play to my lifter's strengths, him or her. And so, you know, if I've got an excellent deadlifter and I know that I'm going to be able to put something onto the bar at the end uh, to win, then, you know, clearly the objective is to be six for six if they're not as strong. I mean, look, the objective is always to make all nine lifts, always. You know, if you look at the data and you look at the results, the, the, that is your easiest way toward building your biggest total. And so, you know, people get so hung up on that and they say, well, if you're going nine for nine, you're not trying hard enough. That's, that's ridiculous. That's the most asinine backwards comment I've ever heard. So you're telling me that when my wife Susie goes nine for nine and hits four PBs, she's not trying hard enough. That's, you're right. How ludicrous does that sound? It sounds yeah. stupid. It's stupid, right? So, of course, you want to make all nine lifts because that's because nine are better than eight, eight are better than seven, and so on and so forth. Nobody wants to go up to bat and strike out. That's not the objective is to miss. Nobody gives a damn what you've missed. You only get credit for the lifts that you make. So back to that strategic point. If I have a supreme deadlifter who may not be good in the other two, but I know that he or she can make up a lot of ground, then of course the objective is to be six for six and to bide our time, so to speak, and, and, and then l- let them catch the competition in the deadlift. Now, conversely, if I've got somebody who's not such a good deadlifter, then I have to treat their squat like their deadlift. I have to let the rope out a little bit. I have to be a little bit more risky, if you will, with the squat. A great example of that, I used to coach Wade Hooper. I don't know. That was before your time. But Wade Hooper was an equipped lifter. He was an 82.5, call it 83 kilo lifter back then. He lifted equipped. He used to go head-to-head with Yaroslaw Olek all the time and Faraskin before Olek. And we used to have some tremendous battles. Now, Wade was the best in the world at squatting, the best in the world at benching, but his tiny little hands, you know, hurt him in the deadlift. So I, we had to be more aggressive in the first six. Again, we wanted to make all six of them, but we had to let the rope out a little bit and let him go for a bigger number on the squat. Had to treat his squat like it was his deadlift. 
So that's where some of the strategy changes. And then the flip side of that is, is let's say I have a lifter that has absolutely no chance at a world championships of placing, but I know they can medal in an individual lift. Then to your point and to JP's point, of course I'm going to be reading and reacting and putting on the bar what I need to put him or her in their best position to get that medal. I mean, that's, that's clearly the objective. So I think it's context is everything, right? It's, it's, it's going to be dependent upon the individual lifter. It's going to be dependent upon the level of the competition. And I need to play to their strengths. And I did, you know, there's, again, like I said, no emotional attachment to the specific number other than what they're capable of or other than what they need. And so I don't get sucked into that at all. I've been Ray Williams's coach since 2014. Uh, it was, it was when the very first time that I worked with him in South Africa, and I've been working with him ever since. And I've been his game day coach, and I've worked with him at nearly every single competition except for a couple of the ones where he traveled down to uh, – I think he did one in Uzbekistan or something. Yeah, really I, helped, I helped coach you on the platform there with Wilkes. So, yeah, so yeah, – That's my boy. Right. Yeah, that's awesome. So and, – <laughs> and, and, so, but, uh, you know, um, and I'm trying to remember where I was going with that, but I've kind of lost my train of thought. But uh, uh, you were saying not getting attached. Get attached. Numbers. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not getting attached. So, you know, <laughs> look, uh, you know, a lot of people have been clamoring on social media oh, 500 kilos, 500. He's going to be the first guy to squat 500. Well, of course he is. He was the first guy to squat you know, a thousand pounds. And now he's going to be the first guy to do it raw, but we're going to do it when he's ready. And when the situation presents itself, we're not going to do it because that's what, you know, the followers want or anything like that. You know, the reason that we didn't put, we did a reason that we didn't put that on the bar at the Arnold is because he didn't feel good about his second attempt. First of all, he got called on his second attempt, uh, but uh, he didn't feel good about it. And secondly, he was in a flight of seven lifters. And so he didn't have that full – I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing testament to his athletic ability and his conditioning that he was still in a flight of only seven. So only had six minutes rest, presumably, before his time to go again and still squatted 490. Yeah, so, imagine – 490 was great as well. Imagine doing and it was, over 400 at six minutes. It's just nuts. Yeah, go on. It's un, right, exactly. Three, three attempts uh, at well over 400 kilos, you know, all in, you know, 20 minutes. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So anyway, so all that is to say is that we don't get an emotional attachment to numbers other than what, you know, they're capable of or other than what we need, you know? Um, something Rob Wilkes said, um, I think at the Powerlifting Australia coaching course is that there's, I think he said that statistically the strongest squatters tend to win competitions, which I think is like, that's fraught with assumptions because if you're the strongest squatter, you might just be the strongest at all three lifts. But do you think there is one lift that has the biggest tactical advantage to be good at? Yeah, for sure. It's the deadlift, right? Because it's last. So my wife and I, I mean, my wife and I joke all the time. She says, let's flip the, flip the script a little bit. She says, I want to squat last and see what happens. And, you know, because she's, again, you know, my, Liz might say the same thing, right? So you have these phenomenal squatters and they might want to squat last. But I think the biggest tactical advantage goes to the, the best deadlifter. So, because you just you know, get to follow up. You know what you have to do. That's it. Yeah, right. And it's also the, 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 it's the lowest risk of the lifts, right? Because if you miss the lift, the bar is either going to stay on the floor or you're going to drop it, right? 
Yeah. The bench, the bench, you're holding the bar above you and the squat. Oh my God. It's literally on top of you. So there's the greatest amount of risk, uh, literally and figuratively in the squat because the bar is on top of you. There's the greatest amount of danger. So, you know, and, and, and look, I've, I've studied the data on attempt selection as much, if not more than anybody else. I have a database of over 15,000 individual performances that I've examined. I know that JP is familiar with some of my work and I'm not saying that to toot my own horn. I'm only saying that to provide context that I've studied it, I think as much as anybody. And, and I understand what the numbers tell us. And so, um, your biggest tactical advantage is definitely going to be for the biggest deadlifter and also understand this, right? If we, if we look at it, if, if we kind of uh, use the analogy that, that these are like cards in a deck, right? The highest card in the deck is always having the strongest lifter always, right? I have an advantage if I have the strongest person in the room. And so when I'm coaching Ray, I have the ultimate advantage because he's matter of factly the strongest man in the room. So I've, and, 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 and that bears itself out. He's the best squatter and he's the best deadlifter. So I've got the first and the last, and we just have to hold serve in the bench press. And that's not to be cocky or conceited. That's just telling the reality of the situation. If I don't have the strongest lifter in the room, then I want the best deadlifter because it's last. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But ultimately it's all going to come down to execution. I mean, Susie and I have been just absolutely blessed by the lifters that we've handled and the lifters that we've coached because they execute so well and because they go out there and they, and they make us look good. We've been very, very fortunate. So, you know, it's one thing to put the right number on the bar, but they're the ones that actually have to go out and execute. So how much with all these athletes you handle, how much variability in what they need from you as coaches do you see? Um, you know, there's a fair amount of variability. Um, I think powerlifting coaches now, we wear more hats uh, than we used to. And that's because, uh, you know, particularly for, for lifters that we can get our hands on, literally and figuratively, if we're, if we're, if we're coaching somebody locally, then we can, uh, you know, th they're going to need us uh, presumably for, for hands-on work and then for programming and then for game day stuff. But uh, I think at the core of all of this, I think everybody, and this often gets overlooked, I think everybody wants someone to believe in them. I think everybody needs somebody to tell them, you know, I see something in you that you don't see in yourself. Sounds Thanks. like a song, man. Yeah, it does. <laughs> everybody needs somebody to love by the Blues Brothers. <laughs> right. That is such yeah. a good movie, by the way. Um, <laughs> We're very off topic, but I'm glad you say something in me, Matt. Um, I say something in you as well. <laughs> I appreciate that. So, but you know, others, others need, might need the motivation. Uh, you know, coaches nowadays, lots of times are like therapists in terms of keeping lifters heads screwed on straight. So, you know, it, uh, you know, for some people, look, they just want the training plan. They want some technique and form cue reminders, the technology of training, if you will, uh, but on, but on game day, I think it's important that you play to the lifter's personality. And so, you know, if you've got a lifter who's uh, very uh, aroused and excitable, then, you know, you need to be a little bit more extroverted. And if you've got somebody who's a little bit more calm or a little bit more cerebral, if you will, then you need to kind of tone it down. You know, you need to kind of meet them at where they are. Don't force them to become something they're not. Because, again, it's your job to put them in the best position to succeed.
So you're kind of talking about like almost like archetypes of athletes, right? You're talking about the more cerebral ones and the more high arousal ones. How do you go about sort of identifying who's who? I ask them. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, right. It's, I mean, it's really, sometimes it's that, it's that simple, right? I pay attention to their behavior. I pay attention to the things that motivate them. I, and I ask them, and I think it all starts with communication. So particularly if I'm working with a lifter that, that I don't write training for the, somebody who has just hired uh, me to coach them on game day or in a national team situation where of course they're getting training from somebody else or they're overseeing their own training is just communication is absolutely paramount. And that has to start way out from the competition. Right. And so I have a questionnaire that I actually send out to a lot of my clients. And that questionnaire includes questions of like, what's your personality type? What's your level of arousal? Are there certain performance cues that you may need to hear for each individual lift? Uh, you know, which lift do you like the best? Which lift do you like the least? And so that I have this cheat sheet, if you will. And, and, and so it, you know, you asked me and you kind of smiled, but it, it's true. I just asked them, uh, you know, listen, I'm your employee. What do you need from me? Mm-hmm. You know, put me in my best position to put you in yours. And so I want to know exactly what I need to do to help them execute and to help them put, you know, to help put them in the best position to succeed. And so it's just asking them and just communicating and just getting on the same page. And I take a lot of pride in running through, particularly with the lifters that I'm coaching at the highest levels, uh, every single potential scenario that we can encounter. And so we discuss it. Uh, oftentimes in a, in a Skype call or a video conference like this, particularly if they're living in a different part of the country, or I will pick up the phone and talk to them and we discuss every potential scenario so that we, there's no emotion attached to it. We're rational thinkers. We think it through like a math problem and we solve it now and we figure it out so that when we're confronted with this scenario or this situation, when the adrenaline is pumping on day, game day, we've already made the decision. You know, A happened, oh, so we're going to B, you know, or C happened, we're going to plan D. This is how we're responding because we've already discussed this. And that way we're not going to be prone to making an error. So you you mentioned earlier that you observe the behavior of the lifter. Mm -hmm. What are some things that you see as far as behavior goes and how does this relate to who they're going to be on the platform and then how you handle them onto the platform? So one of the, I use Bryce Lewis as an example, because certainly you're familiar with Bryce. Yeah. We had him on the podcast like six weeks ago. Yeah. Bryce. Yeah. Bryce is a good friend of mine and a great guy and somebody that I really, really love and enjoy coaching. And so a guy like Bryce, you know, I've observed from him through the years that he's very happy go lucky and he's, uh, he likes to create this bubbly, fun, kind of lighthearted atmosphere. And so He'll, he'll put on the Katy Perry kind of corny dance music and, and things like that. You know, and we sit here and we laugh, but uh, we, to we kind spoke of, to him about that as well. Yeah. Right. And he, you know, and recently, you know, a lot of his studies have gotten into the psychology of training. So he can certainly elaborate on that way more than I can, but he's about creating that, you know, look and his positive environment or his best case scenario looks a lot different than let's say a Sam Calhoun or a Mike Tushier, or a Jennifer Milliken, 
or even a Ray Williams or, or even my wife, Susie, right? But his scenario is different. And so I've observed his behavior and watched him. When does Bryce feel the happiest? When is he in his element? And let's try to reproduce that on game day. And so a lot of it is me just observing him. And a lot of it is me is me asking him. And so you can also see how you can learn a lot uh, by people in what they don't do as much as what they do. And so, you know, one of the things that Bryce doesn't do is he doesn't, you know, go batshit crazy before an attempt. He doesn't go ballistic. He gets fired up, but most of that is internal and he wants to stay in a good, upbeat, lighthearted mood. You know, I can remember telling him in Belarus, as a matter of fact, I'm not going to tell you the joke that I told him, but I told him a funny joke right before he was walking out for his first squat. And I had him and Eric Helms in tears, almost laughing so hard before they were walking out. And I thought to myself, my God, what have I done? I've got to get Bryce kind of together here. But he was laughing and in a very positive frame of mind. And I think that was a very good place to put him because it kind of lowered his anxiety levels a little bit as walking out for that first squat. And so, again, I think going back to the fact that, you know, uh, everybody's a little bit different is you kind of have to understand that. When I, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum, I've coached my good friend Mike Tushier probably more times than I can count. I've coached him at the Arnold. I've coached him at World Championships, at National Championships. If Mike and I say 10 words to, to each other the entire day, that's a lot. And so he and I do a lot of nonverbal communication. He doesn't need to talk. He doesn't like to talk. Uh, a lot of communication is just head nods or me kind of cueing him as how many lifters out he is. Uh, we might have a very, very brief discussion as soon as he comes off the platform, but there's very little talking. We'd love to get Mike on the podcast. It sounds like he'd be a dreadful guest if he doesn't like to <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> no, he he would he would be a phenomenal guest he is uh he is a very high intelligence a lot smarter man than myself he would be a great guest i'm i'm of course uh you know saying all this in the context of just game day you yeah know, when it's when it's his turn to lift he's it is he's, funny because he seems like a very cerebral guy and then you say he just wants to be completely in the zone yep exactly yep so I think oftentimes, as he puts it, he's actually trying to calm himself down so that he doesn't get too excited. What about some of the lifters on the other end of the spectrum with regards to hype? How do you harness that? <laughs> and who's, so, a good, who's a good example of this? Lane Norton. Yes. Probably, <laughs> yeah. Lane is, his, oh. you know, he's probably the first person that comes to mind, you know, or a Stephen Manuel. Now I've never coached, you know, you've seen Steven, of course, Screamer, who's uh, currently on hiatus from lifting competitively. But uh, those are two examples of people that just absolutely go off the deep end. And so, uh, you know, that's, that's not necessarily my cup of tea, but I think you have to, uh, again, as I said, you kind of have to meet that or at least uh, join them in that excitement, you know, and if they want to get hyped up and they like, you know, the ammonia and the loud music and kind of, you know, pacing back and forth, then you have to foster an environment that, that helps to facilitate that rather than kind of put that fire out because there's, those are the situations where they're going to thrive. Does Lane come up with the catchphrases that he yells on the spot <laughs> or does he come in prepared with like eight or nine? Written down? 
he's definitely got pump cards. Yeah, <laughs> he's going on oh, deadlifts. I've got. They said you were done for this attempt. Yeah. I'll go real hype on the third and say go online. Man, uh, I think I, yeah, we say that jokingly. It's probably a bit of both, man. Um, he's he's a he's a fun character and a good guy, but yeah, he he definitely you know rises to the occasion, if you will. Well, there are a couple of lifters in Australia. Um, one of whom is a quite successful coach now who used to say like affirmations to themselves on the platform. And, you know, much as it's easy to poke fun and laugh, if that's the thing that actually gets you in the right headspace to perform, then you got to do it. And I think it's the self-consciousness about doing whatever it is that actually facilitates you lifting well, that holds a lot of people back, you know, and when you find that ability to just flick the switch and just you know be who you've got to be to lift the weights, that's when your performances start to tick up. Yep, I agree. You know, same thing can happen in reverse. Well, you can try and be hype, and if that's just not you, then learning to just be like, "Hey, I'm just going to lift weights calmly because that's what I do," that'll also yeah. open doors for you. You know, of course, yeah. And most of the times, you know, when we again, if we we talked about that bell shaped curve when we talked about the deadlifts and the de- and the bar speeds, you know, you can kind of look at arousal in the same type of curve. And so you don't want to be so comatose that you're, you know, kind of, uh, you know, sleepwalking. Uh, you know, and, and, and then you don't want to go off the deep end where you're running around banging your head on the wall either. You know, you kind of need to find that sweet spot, but everybody's sweet spot is going to little, look a little bit different. So uh, you've mentioned a few lifters that you've coached um, who you admire and stuff, but um, we were curious which other coaches and athletes uh, you admire that you've coached or that you've um, worked with. Yeah, so I so I made I actually was prepared for this when I made a list. So can I just kind of rattle yeah, off some of the names? Yeah. yeah. So so in terms of the lifters that I think I've enjoyed coaching um, the most through the years, obviously um, I, w- I would get slapped if I didn't mention my wife Susie being at the top of that list. And and one of the reasons that I put her at the top of the list, I mean, not only is she my wife and my best friend, but she's literally the single most positive person that I think that I've ever met. So to your point about the affirmations and so forth, she can literally take any negative situation and twist it around in her mind to, to turn it into a positive. And that is just an unbelievable quality that it's really hard to teach. You know, sometimes you've either have that or you don't. And so uh, that's what makes uh, coaching her a ton of fun. Obviously Ray Williams is a blast to work with Um, in terms of, People who have the most confidence in any one lift, I don't think I've ever in my entire life seen somebody more confident uh, than Ray in a squat. Uh, He is absolutely sold and all in that he's coming up with that weight. There's absolutely not a shred of doubt in that man's mind. So warranted, right? Yeah. He, 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 you know, yeah, he, Literally, I mean, he just, he, you know, he'll just tell me in the back, he'll just say, put it on the, load it up, put it on the bar. And you don't see a lot of people like that, particularly in the squat where there's that physical danger. So he's a blast to to work with. I mentioned Wade Hooper. Um, Brad Gillingham has been a blast to work with. I've, I've had the good fortune of coaching Brad twice. He was on my NAPF team in 2008 and then on my world games team in 2009. He's, believe it or not, a clown in the warm-up area uh, and in the, in the, in the staging area. Uh, he's been known to take the ammonia and pass it around. And he wants all of his coaches to do hits of ammonia with him. So, so that's pretty funny. Um, so Brad is, is, is a good guy to work with. Uh, Taylor Atwood for his precision and his, 
focus and his intensity. I don't know that there's anybody else that I've ever worked with who's more precise um, with, with his uh, execution than Taylor. Uh, Bryce has always been a blast because Bryce is very upbeat and because he's so ultra consistent in all disciplines. You know, he's not the best in any one of them, but he's in the top two or three in all of them. Dave Ricks, uh, Superman, Dave Ricks, is the most clutch lifter that I've ever worked with. Um, and, and that's because Dave never goes nine for nine. So, and I say that, I say that with love. Yeah, because he uh, Dave, likes to try hard. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because he likes to try hard. So Dave, Dave never makes all nine lifts. And unfortunately, oftentimes, we're behind the eight ball where he absolutely will need a lift uh, to either stay in the competition, God forbid, in the squat, uh, or in the deadlift to move up a couple of placings. And uh, lo and behold, you know, nine times out of ten, he gets it. Um, Mike Tushir, obviously, I like working with Mike a lot just because he's very cerebral. He's kind of a man after my own heart. Dennis Cornelius, I mentioned uh, because Dennis is just an absolute good old boy. He's just like a country bumpkin, and he's a lot of fun to work with. He's a guy that needs quite a bit of affirmation, believe it or not. So if you lift Dennis up, uh, then he will go out and execute. And so I think that's kind of cool. And then in terms of the women, uh, Jennifer Milliken, she is like – a carbon copy of Taylor Atwood with just a female. And so uh, when it comes to execution and precision, Jennifer Milliken is the female version of Taylor Atwood. And then of course, more recently, and I'll be working with her at the world championships next month or in June uh, is Sam Calhoun. And so she's been a ton of fun to work with as well. Just execution. And of course the big deadlift. I mean, we always have that ACE card up our sleeve. And so, you know, when, you know, you look at that list and that's like an all-star list and I could mention more, but those were some of the ones that have come to mind kind of across both disciplines. There's some equip lifters there as well as uh, some raw ones. If there's one thing that is true about all those people, first and foremost is the, is the people that they are, they're good people. And so, I've been so blessed to work with just people that are of just a, such a high moral fabric and high character and, and, and just really, really good people. And, and, and they all execute at an exceptionally high level. And so they make me look probably a lot better and a lot smarter than I am. And then in terms of the coaches, I made a list of coaches. Um, Dr. Larry Maley is the president of USA Powerlifting. And so he, he uh, was the guy who gave me my start and he's been largely my mentor. And then I think some of the other coaches that I've been influenced by would be, uh, or, or, or that I've had fun competing and coaching against would be Sergey Ivanov of Russia, uh, Dietmar Wolf of Norway, uh, and Avi Silverberg of Canada. Uh, and, and, and particularly with Sergey Ivanov and Dietmar um, with Russia and Norway respectively there, I've really enjoyed competing and coaching against them because uh, they don't make mistakes yeah. and you, you got to be on your toes and their, their lifters are going to be making eight or nine attempts every single time. And so you're going to have to use all the bullets in your gun, so to speak, uh, to take them down. That's not going to be an easy task. And so I've, that brings out, I, I think the best in me. And so I've had a really good time coaching against those people. And I study other coaches quite a bit and I study the other countries. So in addition to the data collection that I've done with the attempt selection and so forth, I make it a point of studying the other countries uh, going into a world championships and their tendencies 
and the progressions that they typically take. And, and I kind of use that as my cheat sheet. And I encourage other countries to do the same for us. So I, I, I look very intently at local competitions and how that might change once they get to an international comp. And I, I, I study that pretty, pretty closely so that I know that what I'm up against. So lots of times when I see an opening attempt that's put up on the board from a lifter of another country, I can pretty much tell you what their coach is going to put on the bar for the second, assuming the first one goes well. Cool. Well, that's so. very comprehensive. Um, I reckon we'll wrap it up there. You've given us heaps of really good information. I'd like to take one quick break before we get you back for the four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person. We, <laughs> we haven't warned you about these ones, so you're in trouble. Oh, my God. Weekly weights. <laughs> Welcome. Welcome back to episode 54 of Weekly Waves. We've got a distressed Matt Gary on the line. And we've just told him what the four questions are and he's, he doesn't really know where to go with it. So we're just going to hit him and hope for the best. So, Matt, the first question is, if you could take one person out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be? It would be The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. We share the same birthday, the same year. And uh, about 10 years ago when I was lighter and leaner, we, we shared a striking resemblance. So, and I think he's a very charismatic character. And I like what he brings to the screen and to real life. So I would like to take him out. Maybe we could celebrate our birthday together. <laughs> would you pick up the bill? Because I've seen how much he eats in those cheap meals. Eh? Oh my God. No, hell no. He's, he's far more uh, financially uh, able than myself. So he's going to pick up the tab. Well, weekly weights, we're a pretty big deal. So we'll get our people to get in contact with The Rock and maybe, <laughs> maybe we can have this birthday dinner teed up. So Matt's birthday, <laughs> Matt's birthday is today, Australia time, and tomorrow, US time. So happy birthday, Matt. I appreciate happy that. Birthday, Thank Matt. you, sir. Thank you. Question number two. Uh, who is your favorite athlete of all time? Man, that's really a tough one. Well, um, other than powerlifting, what sports are you into? Yeah, that, that, so I'm going to give you my answer. It's Troy Palomalo, who was the starting – yeah, he was the starting that's strong safety. Player, right? yeah. That's a football player. Yeah, American football. He was the starting strong safety for the Pittsburgh Steelers for about a decade, number 43. He played Hawaiian strong guy? safety. Yes, Polynesian. Yeah, he, he, was, he, um, he was from uh, – where was he from? Uh, not, not Hawaii. One of the islands down there. Now why can't I think of it? It's on the tip of my tongue. Sure, I'm um, looking him up. Polamalu. Um, yeah. American football, blah, 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 blah. So he's Samoan. Samoan. Samoan, that's it. Yeah, he's yeah. Samoan. Yeah, yeah, Troy Palomalo. So if you go onto YouTube and watch one of his highlight videos, you're talking about one of the most athletic individuals to ever play the game. I mean, literally and figuratively, he, he did things that no other person before or probably after will ever do again. So What's the he, role of a strong safety? It's like, Sorry. It's like, a, it's like the end of the defensive line. So are you covering runners or are you blocking? Receivers. Yeah. Okay. You're covering receivers and then also in run support. So like an additional linebacker, like a small linebacker. Okay. Cool. Yep. Copy. Yeah. Uh, did, are you a Pittsburgh fan? I am. Okay. Well, yes. Right. When was the last championship? It's been a while. <laughs> it's, it's been, the last one has probably been about, about, ten, about 10 years, actually. Okay. So – They've had a lot of drama surrounding them in the last uh, two seasons, which is not good. 
uh, but hopefully things are changing for the better. And ten, ten years ago, did you win with Roethlisberger? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah, he's won. He's won that, twice. That was like seven, they, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, they beat the Cardinals. Uh, the that was the one, the last one that they won. They also lost to the Packers, and so he's been to three. Roethlisberger, they've won two and lost one. Okay. They they lost it. Was that like 2011 or 2010 that they lost to the Packers? That was like 2011 or 2012, I believe. Yeah, because I was in the States at the time. I remember watching. I was in Colorado watching it on TV and everybody was going nuts. Yeah. Yeah, they lost to Green Bay. Yep. Right. They're the Cheeseheads? Is that correct? That's about as much as I know about football. Who's the Cheeseheads? No, you're you're, Green Bay. the, The Packers. Because there's a lot of cheese in Wisconsin, in America. And they have yellow helmets, don't they? Is that correct? Yep, exactly. He's a huge Packers fan. Is he? Yes, he is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not not everybody can have class, so you know. (laughs) I cop that, honey. (laughs) All right. Um, The question's taking a dip for the harder now. Which movie or television character do you most resemble? So I'm going to give... Uh, movie or television? I don't know if there is one in movie or television. Well, um, I'll take any celebrity lookalike, not The Rock, as a start, and then yeah, we'll... not right. So I would say uh, what I mentioned to you off air was Magnus for Magnuson. People say that I bear a striking resemblance to him. He's a strong man, famous strong man from Iceland. It's how crazy is the Icelandic like overrepresentation at the top levels of strongman and strength sports in general. It's incredible, like, right? It's yeah. unbelievable. When are yeah. they going to come it's, into powerlifting? Well, well some of them. You go. So, yeah, so, some of them have competed in powerlifting. I mean, uh, Magnus for Magnuson, I believe, competed uh, back in the day, and I want to. I want to say he actually competed in the IPF at one point in time. Uh, of course, Benedict Magnuson, Benny, has competed. He's he's Icelandic, mm. and then who else is uh, from Iceland? Uh, a lot of people don't realize, but, you know, Zdrunas Savickas, he's not Icelandic, but he competed at the IPF World Championships before oh, really? as well. Yeah, so a lot of people forget about that. He actually, I think Brad Gillingham beat him, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So you do have some strongmen that have, have, have done powerlifting before. I feel like everyone from Iceland is either in a band or a strongman. Or hockey player. Or hockey player? Have hockey player. <laughs> Ice hockey, have they? I thought that was Canada. More like camera as well. Yeah. Anyway, I yeah. No, okay, that's a good answer. We'll co- we'll cop that. Yeah, that's that's close enough. That's fine. All there right. Final question. Your yep. life is being made into a montage and you get to pick the music it's set to. What would you pick? That's a great question because I, I used to do some DJing, so my tastes are very eclectic. Yeah, I have very eclectic taste in music, but I'm going to pick an absolute classic, and I would say Led Zeppelin, Stick Me to Heaven. That's a good and one. So, yeah, and, the, and yeah, it's long, and so that gives me some time if you've got a photo or video montage, and it starts out slow and kind of builds to the end. So I like that. How yeah, I was going to say climactic ending, so it's kind of like, you know, optimistic, exactly. like things are yeah, like, it, better. Exactly. And it's got some classical elements to it as well as some rock and blues and all that good stuff. So it's a good, it's a good mesh. Do you reckon that they plagiarized that Taurus song? <laughs> you know, the lawsuit that they've been launching for forever. Oh, I haven't heard too much about that. So, well, I'm like, I love music. Led Zeppelin 
have been accused of plagiarism for a number of songs and in a couple of instances pretty much outright did. Um, okay. So Dazed and Confused was an adaptation. I'm not sure if it was a complete rip of something somebody else did. And I think Whole Lot of Love was as well. Um, hey. And wow. then I think they even cop some flack about when the levee breaks, but I'm not sure about that. But then Stairway to Heaven, there was another band, and I think I think the band was called Taurus, who accused them of sort of stealing that opening guitar riff, the one with the chromatic descending um, scale. I think they they accused them of plagiarizing that, which is obviously not like the whole of the song, but a substantial part. And so Stairway to Heaven's like regarded as one of the best songs of all time. But then there, there are these people who are really contrary who sort of say, yeah, but they stole it. Um, yeah. I'm not really sure which side of the fence I come down on on it. because I haven't really heard the song that they claim to have, like that people claim to, that they stole from, I should say. Yeah. But they do have a track record of sort of lifting bits here and there, but that's just rock and blues music. It's always a bit incestuous, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. And now that you bring that up, I, I, I have heard some of that, but certainly not in the detail that you have. So, I mean, regardless, it's, it's an absolutely phenomenal piece of music. And I would I think love of- to see Led Zeppelin live. I know, obviously, John Bonham's been gone for a while, but they had those concerts in London, I think it was a decade ago or something, with his son on the drums. It'd be amazing. Yeah, well, yeah I would have, you know, I'm, I'm a lot older than you guys, but I would have also liked to have seen Bob Marley perform. Bob Marley. Uh, you know, yeah, because some of his performances were epic. And, you know, he actually performed a concert the night after being shot, if you know anything about his life. So <laughs> he, he had an assassination attempt on his life and was actually shot and then still performed the next night. So uh, Google that. That's a pretty amazing story. That's so, hardcore. yeah. That's very cool. Yeah, that's, that's hardcore. There was an, att- an assassination attempt on his life. And He'd he, like and a money before his last deadly for sure. Bob Marley. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, right. Smoking a doobie before his last deadlift. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, he's he's uh, that's good music to listen to to kind of calm you down in between attempts, though. Yeah, for sure. He'd be all like, "Why yeah. don't we lift this together, man?" <laughs> be, be so much lighter if we share the load. All right, that's, that's awesome, right. Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, your last job is to just give a quick rundown of where people can get in contact with you for coaching or to pursue anything further that you've told us today. Yeah, so the fastest way to get a hold of me would just to be to access my website, which has all this information, which is just supremesportspt.com. You're going to find my direct email. You can just email me directly right there. It'll have links to our Instagram, which is just mlgary72 on Instagram. And then, of course, uh, I use it a little bit less, but on Facebook, I'm just listed under Matt Gary. Those are the social media channels that are easiest to catch up with me. But if you go to our website, that's kind of just the one-stop shop where you'll be able to access all of that stuff. Supreme Sports Performance. Sports P- yeah, SupremeSportsPT.com. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Will, W.BerkmanPT on Instagram. I'm Alex, Alex Hayes underscore Lift. And we'll chat to you guys next week.